0: This podcast focuses on regulatory and corporate developments in highly regulated spaces. I'm Christian Bax, and I used to regulate medical marijuana.
1: I'm Tony Glover, and I used to regulate alcoholic beverages, casino gaming, and tobacco. Now together, we're regulated.
0: Welcome back to another week of Regulated. This week, we have Dustin Robinson, who is the founding partner of Mr. Cannabis Law, which is a full-service law firm focused on hemp, marijuana, and the psychedelic industries. Dustin's a licensed Florida certified public accountant and real estate agent, and he focuses on his practice providing legal, accounting, financial, and business consulting to the industries that we mentioned. He also started a nonprofit called Mr. Psychedelics. Is it Mr. Psychedelics Law, which is the nonprofit?
2: Yeah, it's Mr. Psychedelic Law. It's a 501c4.
0: So I've, I've run into Dustin a fair amount, just abroad in, in Florida, just talking about medical marijuana issues. He's, he's active, especially down in South Florida, and I'm kind of up in Tallahassee, so when our paths meet, it's been an interesting conversation. And Dustin is on the show today because he, as far as the niche of psychedelics, is, is probably one of the more vocal people that I've seen that's in my circle. And Tony and I love this issue. We love talking about psychedelics because it is just as cutting edge as marijuana was, say, like a decade ago. But it, it's it's doing different things. It's it's you know like the Jeff Goldblum water drop. It, it's like taking a slightly different path through its its march to chaos to get legalized. So, Dustin, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, thank thank you for having me. And and I actually thought we were going to talk about the sex robot industry. I'm a little caught off guard. We're talking psychedelics. Wait a second, sex robots even more oh my than God. psychedelics.
0: That's another. That's that's the the other issue that I think Dustin and I have bonded <laughs> over is we, we see the promise in the future of of sex robots. I'll tell you what, like I'm I'm a big believer in the future of like eating bugs. Like I, I like to think about interesting different things for the future, and I get no more revulsion and like pushback than when I talk about sex robots like you
2: yeah, know well, I understand
1: I, it just <laughs> to be clear I get it.
2: <laughs> well you know the, the article the article you sent me just a few days ago on it said that 20% of people say that they would try sex robots and I'm very interested on in how they collected that data because I don't know how many people are actually going to be honest when they respond to that particular question. But but I think it's some honestly with, we don't need to get into it. But I think it's similar to a lot of tech stuff where, you know, people, I took forever to get on Facebook, Instagram, you know, all this stuff. And, and eventually people start adapting and, and kind of getting with the technology. So I don't know. I, th- I think that it, you'll see that way more than 20% would be willing to do it if the cost was affordable.
1: Well, Dustin, you have a fascinating background. I saw that you worked at one of the largest accounting firms in the country, Deloitte. So can you tell us about your journey professionally? How did you go from being an accountant? To being an attorney to now working in the cannabis and psychedelic space. Absolutely. So
2: I'll be honest, most of my life I took
1: kind of what I
2: see as the easy path and the obvious decision. And later in my life, I'm starting to take a little bit more risk. But you know, early on I got I went to UF. They, I asked my, my mentors what's major would give me the most job security. They said accounting. I studied accounting, got my master's in accounting, did a five-year accounting program at UF. Worked at Deloitte for a bit. My next question to my mentors, which was, you know, what should I next do? And they're like, well, if you have your law degree, then you'll really have job security. So went to law school. I actually really enjoyed both accounting and law school. I'm kind of an accounting and, and, and law school dweeb. Graduated from the University of Florida for law school. Right at law school, worked at Holland Knight, big law firm. actually really enjoyed my time there. It's a great firm, got tremendous experience. And basically, that's at the point in my life where I decided I was gonna take a little bit of a risk. So I went in house running a multi state manufacturing company that we were able to grow quite tremendously. When I left, we were doing about 50 million in revenue. This year, I think they'll probably do 70 to 80 million. So I sold my interest in that a few years ago. Didn't know what I wanted to do. I kind of have a different story as far as getting into cannabis. I know a lot of people's stories about, you know, they were advocates for it and, you know, they believed in it. Really, I, I didn't know much. I mean, I had, I had toyed around with cannabis. I knew what cannabis was, certainly, but I didn't know much about the industry. But I had some friends out of Colorado that were trying to do a transaction with another organ company, and they asked for my help. I was planning to take a year off after I sold my interest. So I I was like, you know what, I'll I'll help them out. I'll I'll see where it goes. So I dove right into it. You know, I knew how to do M&A deals. I knew how to structure all the legal aspects of it, but I didn't know the cannabis aspect. So I learned a lot of the Colorado law, the Oregon law, and I thought it was super interesting how you really, it's not only understanding the substantive area of law, it's not only understanding M&A stuff, but you really have to understand how that interplays with the cannabis laws in each of those states. So we were able to structure that deal pretty creatively and it went through we closed it worked out well they referred me to someone else I did that transaction for free and before I knew it people were, were contacting me asking me to to help with it and, and really I see my firm as being able to provide you know big firm type of expertise because I I, get, I came from the big firm life but also with a specific focus to the cannabis industry and I found that there was Really a niche in that because my old law firm, Holland and Knight, when I met with them after, after I sold my interest in my last company, they informed me that they won't touch marijuana stuff, you know, because it's federally illegal. And I went like, you know, a light bulb went off. I'm like, oh my God, the, the, there's not full access to some of these big firms and this highly sophisticated legal consulting so let me create a firm that is going to be specifically focused on, on the cannabis space and other highly regulated substances and apply kind of my, my, my background as far as legal,
1: accounting, tax, and, and real estate. Well, with that background, you know, a lot of our audience is mid-career, but we do have some folks that are younger, you know, are looking at getting into, you know, one of these industries. You know, with your background, what would you recommend? Should, should a young person who's maybe in school, in accounting school, in law school, finishing up their MBA, should they jump into a heavily regulated space like cannabis or psychedelics? Or should they try to go, quote unquote, work for a Wall Street firm, kind of work for a big national firm, a Deloitte, a, a, a Holland and night? What kind of path do you think you would advise your younger self to take? Yeah, really good question. I get that question a lot. You could, you could
2: imagine law students right now who are having trouble finding jobs. They think being a cannabis attorney is the sexiest thing there is. So I get contacted a lot by by law students that are interested in interning or working with me and really the advice I give to them and then I'm happy to bring them in and kind of mentor them and, and train them but really where you would add the most value to my firm is if you had a few years under your belt really you learning a certain substantive area of law whether it be intellectual property M&A transactional even litigation if you could really be an expert in that particular area of law and then later on understand how that area of law intersects with with cannabis laws that's really what i recommend to some of the younger people so i I know a lot of them are trying to just go all in on cannabis and i'm not saying that's that's not the right path because certainly you could you could do very well just understanding the the laws as it relates to cannabis but it's interesting because people think cannabis law is like its own area of law but it's not (laughs) you know there's cannabis law intersects with every single other area of law. So until you really understand these other areas of law, it's really hard to understand how cannabis laws intersect with those laws. So my advice would be generally to go go out, get some experience at, at another firm in a particular area of law and, and, you know, keep up to speed with the cannabis stuff. And uh, hopefully you're at a big firm that maybe also allows you to, you know, do some cannabis work as well. That would be more my advice. Become an expert in, in your field first and then figure out how you could apply the cannabis cannabis laws and and accounting stuff to that
0: that's a good point and uh, you know what i hear a lot of is i don't want to be pigeonholed i don't want to get stuck in this specific area and it's really interesting to me because i think that thinking that way is really more of where cannabis was in like 2014 2015 where they needed like these stem cells these plucky like entrepreneurs to just take a chance whereas now it's way more corporate way more specialized and so you can get hired if you've fill a demand, but then, you know, it's, it's not like there's, Oh, here, uh, here's our chief operating officer job for a company that's now valued at $400 million. Like here you go. Someone with no experience in the cannabis industry.
2: Yeah. It's really yeah. tough. Yeah. And then look, early on there, no one had experience in the cannabis industry. So, right. you know, like, so, you know, there's CEOs, COOs that I, I, in the beginning, they're, you know, stealing from maybe the liquor industry or, you know, other industries. that A lot of food.
0: finance guys from the, yeah, from the East yeah. Coast. Yeah.
2: And so, you know, now you're seeing, you know, executives come into the industry that actually do have cannabis experience under their belt. But, but even even in-house executives, I think business is business. You know, you need to understand the cannabis industry, of course but you, you need to be a good businessman. You need to be a good CFO. That's first. So be a good CFO. Then if you could understand the cannabis world as well, that's just a, a double whammy and that's just fantastic. But if you're not a good CFO period, then you're not going to be a good CFO in the cannabis space. So I think people need to understand that you've got to be good at whatever it is you're doing, whether, you know, being a leader, a mentor, a manager, whatever it is, you got to be good at that skill set but also if you have the added benefit of understanding the the cannabis industry, I think that's huge.
0: So walk us through the 30,000 foot view of the state of psychedelics today.
2: Absolutely. So I think there's, there's really three areas we need to pay attention to city, state, and federal. So um, from a city perspective, we've served. And and when I say city, actually I mean municipalities, because we've seen some action from counties as well. So, so really we've had, Denver, Oakland, Santa Cruz, and recently Ann Arby, Arbor as cities. And what that means is essentially they are making entheogenic plants and fungi, including psilocybin, peyote, and other psychedelics. They're, they're basically making them the lowest priority for the city to, to prosecute. And they're not allocating resources to, to prosecuting that. Now, we've also seen Tanaw County, it's whatever the county is that Ann Arbor is in, They've also come out, their DA has basically come out and said that they're not going to prosecute from from a county perspective. And then what we see in uh, Oregon is is from a state perspective, they have measure 109, which is really going to be the first legal framework that we have from a state that allows the administration of of psilocybin. And, And psilocybin, just for those that don't understand what it is, it's the compound in mushrooms. It's basically what THC is to cannabis is what psilocybin is to is to mushroom. So basically different psilocybin substances are, are basically going to be legalized in Oregon. They already got all the signatures they need. It's going to be up for ballot. And then essentially the state has another two years to basically kind of roll out their program. So I, I believe in 2022 is when we'll probably see the Oregon initiative really rolled out. Simultaneous with that, they have Measure 110, which basically decriminalizes or actually just reduces the level of the crime for possession and use of, of psilocybin. And then, so that city, that state, so we have a few cities decriminalizing. We have one state, Oregon, that is rolling out a legalized framework. And then the FDA, um, this is what a lot of people don't realize. They think this is just cities and states kind of going rogue like they did in cannabis early on. But, but what's really interesting is the federal government, the FDA, is really looking at the psychedelics very preferentially. Right now we have maps in phase three clinical trials on MDMA. I believe MDMA is probably going to be the next psychedelic that will be FDA approved. You also have Compass Pathway and USONA that have had, that are doing, I believe they're in phase two clinical trials with psilocybin on treatment resistant therapy. The FDA has actually deemed psilocybin breakthrough therapy on treatment resistant depression. So a lot of people don't realize that breakthrough therapy is a, is a term of art for the FDA. So the FDA, it, their ears are open and their eyes are open and, and they're taking note of, of the tremendous medicinal value of psilocybin. So that's kind of the city, the state, the FDA, things are moving extremely quickly. And then kind of what you have that is very separate from all that is you have ketamine. So what makes ketamine interesting is that it is a psychedelic but it's actually a schedule 3 substance. So ketamine has been approved by the FDA already and it's been approved for ana- as an anesthetic. So a lot of doctors use it as an anesthetic, they've been using it for years. It's a fantastic anesthetic, but what people are starting to realize is that it has tremendous value as tremendous value for mental health benefits. So addiction, PTSD, depression, and doctors are allowed in their medical discretion to use a product that's been FDA approved for an off-label use. So what doctors are doing right now, and you see it on the West Coast tremendously in California, you know, you have a lot of doctors that are doing ketamine infusions in their, in their offices. Now in Florida, I'm working with several groups that are, are rolling that out as well, where they are using ketamine for its off-label use for various mental health, and not just mental health, also, also pain as well. A lot of pain management doctors are trying to incorporate that into their practice. So it's very interesting because the doctors who are setting up this framework for how to administer ketamine, I think are really going to have a really good foundation for when psychedelic assisted therapy is legalized by the state or by the federal government, p- potentially. So, so bringing that all the way into Florida now, my not-for-profit, Mr. Psychedelic Law, we're a 501c4, and our mission is to use medical and spiritual research to drive responsible legal reform in Florida for psychedelics. We've been meeting with several cities. I think we'll probably have three cities decriminalizing entheogenic plants and fungi for you know probably within the next few months. And I am also now talking to a couple different people on drafting an actual bill from a state perspective so the movement is here it's coming a lot of people think I'm crazy when I mention psychedelics quite honestly I thought my clients were crazy when they even brought psychedelics up to me but the reality is is that the movement is here and uh, we're we're making things happen here in Florida and and it, it will look very different than the cannabis supply chain I think that's important for people to understand is that the psychedelic supply chain like in the Oregon initiative you have to get these products administered within a licensed facility by a licensed facilitator. So whereas in cannabis, you go to a retail store, you pick up your cannabis and you have to take this product in private. In Florida, they require that you consume the the, the medical marijuana in private. It's actually the opposite in the psychedelic industry. They actually require that the products are administered at those facilities with a licensed facilitator. And whether that's gonna be the legal framework that's rolled out in other states, is, you know, time will tell, but that's what they're doing over in Oregon.
0: What's the medical structure of the Oregon program going to look like? There's if, a well, big, first, how's it, how's it polling right now? I, I'd say that. that
1: very,
2: the very high. Point. Very high. I feel very confident that it's going to pass. It already got all the signatures and, and everything I've read is pointing towards it passing. So I think it's going to pass. What's really interesting is there's basically kind of, this is oversimplifying it, but there's kind of two schools of thought right now in the psychedelic industry, there's the the psychotherapeutic approach, where those are kind of like, this is a medicine, and this should be treated like a medicine. And so we should require qualified conditions, and it should be administered by doctors. It's more like we see with medical cannabis, right? But then you have the other approach, which which is the entheogenic approach, which is more of a, a spiritual and individual rights argument, where we all have the right to to explore our own minds and pursue happiness and that's protected as an individual right of our own and we should be able to determine our own relationship with nature and really that's the decrim nature people that they're they're really the people leading the decriminalization carlos and larry i spoke with them yesterday for a couple hours and they've been great those are the leaders at decrim nature and their focus is really on on individual rights and full access for everyone so you kind of have these two approaches And, you know, some people are somewhere in the middle. So what Oregon has done in Measure 109 is they are, in Measure 109, they're not providing full access to everyone. So essentially, they're allowing, you do not have to have a qualifying condition, and they put that specifically in the measure, but you do have to do this through a licensed clinic, and you have to do this through a licensed facilitator. And I don't want to speak for Decrim Nature or any of these different groups, but the Decrim Nature have Publicly come out and take an issue with the measure 109 because they don't think they, they think it creates too much government control and the government is too involved. They believe more in just freeing the plant and letting people have full access. Now, there is measure 110 that is in Oregon as well, which would reduce the penalties for possession and use of these products. But so, to answer your question, basically. There's no requirement for qualifying conditions, but they are putting this under the Department of Health in Oregon, so they are treating it as, as something that is, is more medical as opposed to spiritual.
0: What about providers, like this, where, the supply chain of psilocybin? How, how does it get from spore to the actual patient?
2: in the Oregon initiative, at least. And, and, you know, the answer is we don't know yet cause it's not there, but, but the, in the, in the Oregon initiative, they basically have licensed producers. So what's going to happen the way the supply chain would work is that you have licensed producers and those producers would provide the product to the service centers, which are the licensed service centers where psilocybin is, is administered. And those service, those service centers would basically administer the product. So you wouldn't have consumers buying it. So a lot of, I deal with a lot of people call me all the time and they want to start creating like a consumer brand for, for, you know, psilocybin. And there are people already in the underground that are creating consumer brands for psilocybin and they're trying to build up that brand. But what I explain to them is that, you know, even when this gets legalized, this might not be a consumer facing thing. You might really just be selling to service centers that are really the buyer's, and the service centers are the ones that administer it to, to the patients or the consumers.
0: One of the other pods that we did on this particular subject, Tony and I went deep in in the actual terminology and usefulness of legalizing entheogenic plants or entheogenic substances. And the the position I took, and I'm still willing to be persuaded on this, but it seems like it's a really slippery slope when you're legalizing based on the term entheogenic because entheogenic is what is in the the mind of the person who's using it helps determine whether or not it's fundamentally falling into that basket it's also not something that has like definitive terms like that everyone agrees like this is part of the entheogenic category so like do you think that's, a? I mean, outside of like Oregon, when you start getting into flyover country, you start getting into purple states like Florida, do you think that this entheogenic philosophy on these laws is are going to work outside of like a very liberal state like Oregon?
2: And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. And, you know, this is what a lot of my conversations with the Decrim Nature guys centers around because Carlos and Larry from Decrim Nature, they are, all about full access and limited regulation. And, and, you know, they, they believe in the individual. And once again, I don't want to speak for them. So, you know, mm-hmm. to, I, I don't want to speak for them. But whereas my school of thought being a lawyer, you know, my, I, I always just go straight to like, all right, how do we regulate this? You know, right. how do we, how do we figure out a regulated structure and how do we do this responsibly? And quite honestly, I'm, I'm not an expert user in psychedelics, certainly. So, um, but you know, I've talked to shamans, I've talked to spiritual leaders, I've talked to, you know, a lot of people who have used these substances. And my position is really that they're powerful substances, I don't want to use the word that they're dangerous substances, they're powerful. And whenever you have something that's powerful, it can be used for for good. But it can also be used. there, there also is are bad things that could happen, they're very powerful. And you know, if put in the wrong hands under the wrong set and setting, they can have bad effects. Now, no one is o- overdosing on, on mushrooms. They're, they're natural. They come from the planet and I don't think there's been any cases of anyone overdosing on them. So that's a positive, but there have been cases of people doing, you know, jumping off buildings or again, walking in front of cars, you know, doing crazy things. They have very strong effects on your mind, especially if you t- take too much of them. So I'm of the position is that, that we just need to make sure, however we roll it out, we need to not only account for the potential benefits, but also the potential risks and roll out a responsible legal framework. But I'll, I'll tell you, you know, that's I don't think it, I'm not saying the decrim nature don't want us to roll this out responsibly. But you know, they they truly believe, and and I think, and I'm I'm opening up my mind and trying to really come from their world and under and understand where they're coming from, and they truly believe that we should have the own power over our relationship with nature, and that these are great substances that there's really no reason to have to overly regulate them or create this bureaucratic licensing structure around them, and we should allow full access for everyone to be able to, to reach higher, a higher level of consciousness. So I, I actually haven't decided where I fall, you know, between these, these different approaches. My job right now is really just to listen to everyone and understand where everyone's coming from and try to do what's most responsible for Floridians.
0: I mean, obviously that would cover psilocybin right if you're decrim nature how far does that extend does that cover something that's synthetic like mdma or so like... I don't want
2: to, once again i don't want to speak okay. for nature okay. but in in general what we're talking about when we're talking about nature we're talking about ethnogenic plants and fungi so psilocybin peyote ayahuasca gotcha um, ibogaine all those different products now mo- all the fda trials what you know a lot of people are, are frustrated because the fda trials are all using synthetic versions of psilocybin and of course MDMA is synthetic. What they don't realize is in, in order to properly do FDA clinical trials, there's a certain level of quality and consistency you need that you can't capture within the plant. So they need to be made within a lab. And so that's why a lot of these this, the, the, the FDA work that's being done is synthetic. But I think the movements that we're seeing in cities and states are more focused on the plant medicine not the synthetic versions, Hmm. which is similar in cannabis. You know, if you think about it in cannabis world, you know, right now it's, you could synthetically create cannabinoids, K2 spice. You can make them in the lab. They're just more dangerous. What, what the cannabis industry has done is really focused on the the plant-based medical benefits of marijuana, as opposed
1: to the synthetic version of marijuana. One of the things and I, I do feel like I say this every other podcast, but one of the great things about the American experiment is that the 50 states basically serve as 50 different laboratories. So for people that have concerns about psilocybin or any of these other substances, we're about to get a lot of data out of jurisdictions like Denver depending on what Oregon does, Oakland, and the other jurisdictions that are moving forward. So one of the things that makes me optimistic, I don't pretend to know what the science will be and what the data will look like, but I know that we'll have access to it before we start considering whether to do it in my backyard and in, in Christian's backyard.
2: Yeah, and, and that's important. And what they're doing in Oakland to decriminate nature, I give them tons of credit. You know, They're trying to roll out a resolution. You know, The first step is really decriminalizing from a c- city perspective, but The next step is creating pilot programs within these cities and allowing states to sanction those pilot programs so that we actually start learning and researching and understanding these substances. So, you know, you're absolutely right, whether it's cannabis or a psychedelic substance, at the end of the day, until we do the research and we we understand them and and we develop the data, you know, there's only so much you could do with them. So I think it really starts with research. And that's what a lot of the psychedelic businesses right now are centered around, is really developing intellectual property. So whether it's methodologies for extraction or formulations, MedMen is right now trying to do clinical trials on mixing LSD with, with MDMA, I believe, which in the recreational world, I believe is called candy flipping. And so, you know, a lot of the the, the psychedelic businesses right now that, that I'm talking to and working with, they they are trying to develop that intellectual property, that research, that understanding, and trying to monetize off it.
0: One of the risks I see with with this whole movement is that I don't know if we've gotten a clear indication from the feds that cannabis was a one-time thing or if they're going to stand down anytime a state makes a significant push on it's it seems like decriminalizing anything but like things that expressly will kill you so meth heroin fentanyl I, i don't see a lot of reform around those areas but what i'm interested in like just just to carry out a specific example. If, if, say, Oregon created the equivalent of, say, Florida's medical marijuana program, right? So it creates a set number of vertical manufacturers and producers. I don't know what the verb is, because I don't know if you cultivate mushrooms. It's like spores that you, whatever, cultivators for mushrooms that are cultivating psilocybin. If the federal government sees an actual, like, corporate structure that's again violating federal law if if they come in and, and don't do what the federal government was doing in the late two thousand aughts, basically shutting those things down until there's a you know something from the Justice Department telling them to expressly stand down because it seems like if you if they don't so they let marijuana happen, if they don't enforce the scheduling system and federal law for ayahuasca for psilocybin for MDMA, for LSD, it, it seems like really it, it, they're going to they're going to lose their grip on it and the scheduling system just won't be relevant anymore. You-
2: yeah, well, this is something that I don't like to publicly talk about too much, but in in some ways some of these cities that are decriminalizing are becoming hot zones for the federal government to come in and make examples. So it's not right. getting a lot of publicity, but Denver has had a couple bus out there by the feds. So what I always remind people is decriminalization is not the same thing as legalization. So these the, these cities that are decriminalizing, that does not make it legal from a state perspective, and it does not make it legal from a federal perspective. And in some ways, and, and I don't like to say this, but in some ways, these cities that are decriminalizing are catching the attention of the DEA, and the DEA has taken some actions, unfortunately, and, and made it made examples out of a couple individuals out there in Denver. So certainly that's, that's, you know, people that get in the cannabis industry are, are willing to take some risks. And I think, you know, if you're looking to get into the psychedelic industry, there's, there's certainly risks out there, regardless of what your city says, and regardless of what the state says, you know, even if Oregon eventually passes it, just like you said, it's still a schedule one substance federally, and the federal government could at any time start cracking down on it and if they don't then what type of message does that send for other scheduled substances just like you're saying you know it it could potentially be a slippery slope although i think psychedelics are really you know very low likelihood for abuse and they have tremendous therapeutic value so i really think they have no business being anywhere on any of these schedules And, and in fact i have a, a nonprofit that we set up with one of my clients called Mind Army. And we're specifically focused on the descheduling uh, federally of various different psychedelics. So, you know, a lot of people think that that's a pipe dream, but I'll tell you, we've had a lot of interest from a lot of people in the federal government that we've talked to. And I think that I'm not going to say that we'll be able and we'll be successful at descheduling uh, psychedelics, but I think it might not be as far off as some of us may think.
1: Well, if you're an investor looking at getting in the psychedelic space, it seems like, you know, obviously we're recording this in October of 2020. So we're looking at a very consequential election. And the current attorney general and and the previous attorneys general at DOJ in the Trump administration have been hostile to cannabis, of course, but, you know, have kind of been fought to a stalemate on that issue. You know, what's the current DOJ outlook on psychedelics generally? And do you think there may be a prospect for change in a new administration? A lot. That's a lot. <laughs> you know, the, the prospect right
2: now, obviously, like I said, the feds, it's still a schedule one, schedule one substance, but look, we're in a pandemic and mental health is at an all time high. Mental health issues is at an all time high. And we need, we need alternative treatments right now. The, the, the pharmaceutical industry has proven to be a model that is not helping people with their mental health issues. It just, the mental health issues just keep climbing. And so these products, these substances, these psychedelic substances are showing tremendous promise. Tremendous. And and really, this isn't new research. What's important for people to understand is the history of psychedelics. In the 50s and 60s, a lot of this stuff was already being discovered. There's tremendous research that was published in the 50s and 60s. What happened was the hippie counterculture got their hands on it, started misusing some of these psychedelic substances, and basically it got lumped in in the 70s with the war on drugs. So really, you know, the research that we're doing today is really just picking up on what we were already knew back in the 50s and, and, and 60s. Now, what's interesting is that I think it's Biden's son suffered from, I believe it was either addiction or depression. And, and I believe he actually cured himself and he's public about this through, through the use of ibogaine. And so, you know, when you think about on Biden's side, his son traveled to a different country where it was legal to take if he believes in that, why, why are we forcing our United States citizens that are suffering from these types of ailments to not have access to these types of medicines? Especially what I think is really interesting is end-of-life people. That's a big topic. And in Canada, they just approved the use of psilocybin for end-of-life patients. But if you're at the end of your life and you are so terribly depressed and, and nothing is, is helping and you have this fear of death, and there is something that shows any sort of promise. You should have the individual right to take it. That's ridiculous. I mean, we, are indivi- we have individual rights in America. And if I'm at the and thank God, knock on wood, I don't suffer from PTSD, addiction, depression. I'm not at my, the end of my life, thank God, or at least I don't think I am. But if I ever were, I mean, that's such a dark place. And the treatments are not working for you. So why should you not have the opportunity? If if it's good enough for Biden's son to use, why shouldn't all the American citizens have access to it? Um, So that's on the Biden side. And then I think on the Trump side, look, I think a lot of the cannabis and and psychedelic stuff, it really cuts through both parties because I believe cannabis and psychedelics is, is an individual rights thing and small government thing. And so if you think about conservatives, they're all about individual rights, small government and economic prosperity that is what cannabis and psychedelics could bring it could bring you know individual rights we have the right to control our own mind and pursue happiness it will make the government a lot smaller by descheduling and it will certainly at least in the in the cannabis space certainly will have a, a huge economic impact so Hopefully that kind of answered your questions, but you know, the future of psychedelics in, from a federal perspective is is very complicated and anyone who thinks they have the answer on where that's going to go is crazy. I've heard some experts in the industry said, that say that we're 25 years away from that. I have other people that say this needs to happen within the next couple of years. So it's, it's a crapshoot. <laughs>
0: there's a couple of national things that are that you've just brought up that are interesting the first is what a possible biden administration would would be like on on either cannabis or on psychedelics and you know you look at the the national democratic platform failed to adopt a aggressive pro recreational cannabis stance and they kind of punted and biden has never been a friend to the drug legalization movement nor has kamala harris i think i think she's probably been you know, more aggressive on the other side of that because she was actually prosecuting. I don't. I. I honestly, unless unless his handlers see it, I uh, or do it, I just don't see there being a lot of independent momentum, at least coming from Biden. Like I don't think Biden goes in saying, "In my first hundred days, I want to make progress on cannabis and on." Uh,
2: I, I. I agree. I don't think. I don't think Biden. I mean, look, Kamala Harris in this last VP debate. I don't think. I think it was yesterday or two days ago. She explicitly said. That she wants to deschedule marijuana, so stock prices went up in the cannabis industry the next day, which was interesting. But look, at the end of the day, what these politicians say on their campaign trails is not does not always act, you know, match their actions. And Kamala is the vice president, is, is is looking to be the vice president, not the president. And I, I agree with you. I don't see Biden taking federal action with respect to cannabis or psychedelics. You know, it is what is it is. And, and also there's there's a whole process that people don't really realize. A lot of people talk about president just signing like an executive order to deschedule. And, you know, there's a lot of questions surrounding whether a president really even has authority to do so. There's kind of a whole process that that would have to to go through. So I, I agree with you. I don't see even whether it's Biden or, or Trump winning, uh, I don't really see there being a big, big movement from either president with respect to cannabis or psychedelics.
1: Well, uh, the other
0: thing from a federal perspective that I, I generally like and am sympathetic to, the it's a very libertarian argument that we should be able to experiment with our own bodies. We should be able to consume substances if, they, if we think that they can help pull us out of a psychological rut or the, the more Joe Rogan perspective of actually expanding your mind through these things. I mean, that, I, I'm sympathetic to that argument. What, what always troubles me, though, when I hear that is that it's a, it's a good philosophy, but that is functionally not how our, our legal system works. Specifically, we made the judgment a long time ago, at least the Supreme Court more or less made it for us, that with substances that can enter the stream of commerce – you don't get that right to experiment. So if you're if you're growing psilocybin at scale that that is essentially entering the stream of commerce. The the federal government has the right to to regulate interstate commerce, right? They have the right to shut you down, just purely from a because I said so, and you're entering a commercial market. Therefore, we have established precedent to nip whatever you're doing in the bud. So I don't know. What do you think? I, I feel like you're. It's going to be really hard to just pick off the libertarian market, I think you have to almost do what what marijuana did, which is you have to create these regimented, regulated markets to keep the federal government from coming in and shutting down more producers of this stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, the entheogenic advocates don't don't want to hear this, but I happen to agree with you in a lot of ways. I mean, if nothing else, for political reasons. You know, it's much easier to get people in Tallahassee on board with the concept that this is something medicinal and we're going to bring in doctors and we're going to bring in medical professionals that are going to explain the medicinal value and we're going to administer these to end-of-life patients or to, you know, depression patients or whatever it might be, qualifying conditions. It's much easier from a political perspective for the legislators to, to get behind that, as opposed to us saying, look, these substances are powerful substances and forever have been Schedule One, and by the way, we want them to just be unregulated and, and, and free access for all. Politically, I just don't even know how possible it is, at least at least not, you know, and look, in super liberal states, potentially, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to say it can't be done in any states. But somewhere like Florida, I couldn't imagine that, you know, that type of approach would would be successful. So that's why I'm really trying to, I don't want to alienate any of the groups or or any of the, the, the different philosophies behind it. But I want, I hope that all these groups understand that my goal is to just move the movement forward in a responsible fashion. And I think trying to kind of balance both approaches is what you're going to need to need to do to just at least get the political support that we need.
0: Yeah. And I think the promise of psychedelics is immense in the sense that it essentially offers almost an, an eternal sunshine of the spotless mind type of, type of treatment, right? Where you can kind of target and address some deep psychological scar, scar tissue that just doesn't seem to be available with a a typical therapy session. At least that's what the research I've I've read seems to indicate. So the best case, the use case, right, is incredible because there are a lot of people who don't really want to get high, don't really want to use cannabis, but everybody's got something that they'd like to zap out of their brain. So I think that's a really strong use case. But one thing that I think the psychedelic industry is missing that cannabis had is Sanjay Gupta's Weed, where it publicized the story of Charlotte Figgy to, you know, across the country and it made policymakers everywhere instantly stand up and look, and it gave advocates something concrete from a back then a relatively neutral source of information and say, This is this is something we need to pursue, right? And I, I is there some is there an equivalent to that?
2: A few things. So, so first off, whenever I go in and I talk to cities, you need to first kind of educate them on what's going on legally around the world and you need to educate them of the medical research. But what I always want to do after that is appeal to their heart. And the way, the way you appeal to their heart is is by having use cases. So we've actually been collecting letters from various Florida citizens that have been positively impacted by the use of psilocybin and other entheogenic plants and fungi. And you'd be shocked when you hear all the different stories. So I don't think we have one, you know, shining star story that literally is the example throughout the entire industry. But I think what we have is tens of thousands of anecdotal stories for people with PTSD, addiction, depression, various. I just, I, re- I represent a, a gentleman called Zappy. Zappi, they just wrote an article calling him the Psychedelic Concierge to the Stars. And he just shot a movie with Lamar Odom. It was a documentary. So Zappi has shot multiple documentaries. He recently shot one with Lamar Odom. And Lamar was suffering from addiction and depression. He had all sorts of mental trauma in his life. And he took him to Peru and he did ketamine treatment and also ibogaine treatment. And Lamar Odom actually returned. And he ended up actually playing professional ball in Europe for a year at like the age of 40, and he's been clean ever since. So, you know, this documentary probably should be, we're hoping it gets released on Netflix in like the next 60 days, but there's tons of use cases just like Lamar Odom, some way more, even more impactful than that. I mean, we work with, uh, I work with another group called ketaminefund.org. They're a nonprofit here in Florida that they provide free ketamine treatment for veterans. And I get videos from them weekly on on you know of course with the patient's approval but with people with PTSD that are taking ketamine and it's amazing when you hear these people talk while they're under under the ketamine and they talk about the experience that's causing the PTSD and they're totally detached from it and they don't have the emotional effect that they normally have when they're not on ketamine so they're able to actually face the problem address the problem and fix the problem right in front of you and have breakthroughs. And I have literally probably hundreds of these videos that I could pull up on my phone of veterans having these these breakthroughs where they're actually able to address that trauma that's been getting us. I, I compare it to, you know, if, if you have a dent in your car, if you just walk away from it and you don't look at it, it's not gonna fix itself. You need to go towards the dent and you need to go fix that dent or else it's not gonna get fixed. It's the same thing with someone that has trauma or PTSD. You have to be able to, to approach that trauma. And when you're not on these psychedelic substances, that trauma is just too emotional for you to face. So what ketamine does is a dissociative that allows you to kind of address the, the, that trauma and, and fix it. And what it also does, a lot of these psychedelics, I've heard people compare it to your technology is not working. If your computer is not working, what do you do? You press restart. So, you know, when people have depression or addiction, they got something going on in their mind that's just screwing with them. And what some of these psychedelic substances do is it just, it resets, it resets it and it gives you another opportunity. And people have done one psilocybin treatment or ayahuasca treatment, and it's broken their addiction to heroin, opioids, and various other substances. So the use cases are there. I don't, I don't know if there's, there's just one use case, but I think we probably have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of use cases out there.
0: Talk to me about ketamine. I'm interested because it's happening right now. so you have clients that right now have clinics that are offering, offering ketamine therapy. So walk us through why you would go in for ketamine therapy from a general patient perspective and what actually happens to you while you're, while you're there.
2: Absolutely. So right now the, the main model that's being used is the in-person infusion model where you're going into a clinic I'm actually working with a company we are launching, so it's called KetaMD, and we're actually launching an at-home platform where you could actually do this in the comfort of your own home, where you come online, you meet with a doctor, you have a consultation. If, you are, if the doctor determines in his medical discretion that, that ketamine could help for your condition, you get delivered two ketamine lossages. You then set up a one hour guided session with one of our trained nurses and you basically take the two um, lozenges and we guide you through your journey and, and we help you, you know, and then there's a whole integration. So there's really in psychedelics, there's the preparation, there's the administration of the product, and then there's the integration. So, you know, whether you're doing it through telemedicine or you're doing it in person at a clinic, there's the preparation, which is really setting your intent and figuring out what it is you are trying to achieve by taking it. Then you have actually, you know, taking the substance, which in a lot of ways, you know, a lot of it isn't talk therapy. It's literally laying on a couch with a blindfold and letting your mind wander and and opening up your mind and kind of resetting your mind and entering that, that place of bliss where you could kind of deal with your issues and then after that there's the integration so i actually have never i never did ketamine before and i was helping all these ketamine businesses so you know i had some issues that that you know i had to deal with myself and they were always pushing me to to, to try ketamine and so i went into my a doctor that i work with that's one of my clients and she does ketamine infusions and i had my own ketamine experience and i will tell you I was outside of my body. It was a, it was quite an experience. I laid on my back for two hours with a blindfold on and I didn't move. And I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a fidgety guy. I don't think I ever lay on my back without moving for two hours, but you know, it was a total out of body experience. I was well-prepared. It was administered extremely professionally. And then we did an integration as well. And it was, it was mind expanding and I think I elevated my state of consciousness and was able to, you know, deal with any of the issues that I was having. And the doctor who did that, I could I could probably say is Dr. Wiener. Dr. Wiener does tremendous work in the cannabis space. She's very well known in the industry. When she's recently added ketamine infusions to her practice. And it's, it's exploding. It's huge. And she is learning. I just had a call with her a few days. Uh, you know, I, I want to kind of hear what, what her thoughts are. And then when she first started doing it, she was super skeptical. Most doctors are, you know, doctors are, doctors and lawyers, we're trained to be skeptical. You know, we're not the shamans and the other spiritual leaders. But we, we question, we, we believe in the Socratic method. And so and so Michelle was really, you know, kind of like, all right, I'm going to try this, but I don't know. And I talked to her just a few days ago and she's like, Dustin, this is for real. She's like, it is crazy. The uh, uh, amount of, of feedback I'm getting. And the, like, she's like, people come into my office totally messed up. And you could just see when they leave my office on their face. You don't even need to talk to them. They're a different person. You could just look at their face and you could tell they are a different person. And so I'm I'm a skeptical guy, but when I talk to doctors, multiple doctors that are doing this, that all give me that same story, that's when I start to become a become a believer. Because for it took me a while, you know, I'm like, oh, ketamine, I'm I don't know crap about that. I don't know, I'm not a doctor or anything like that. But I've had so many conversations with so many doctors tomorrow I have a meeting with Revive wellness where they're actually rolling out a bunch of ketamine we're we're doing lunch tomorrow and you know we're going to talk about his strategy for helping with mental health issues and he has his own story that the founder of that business where ketamine saved him and so that's why he's motivated to do more with it and to provide these clinics so like I said I mean the the use cases are there I mean, they're there and and I wouldn't believe it and I wouldn't be getting on board with it if they weren't there. I'm not trying to push something that doesn't work or that is, you know, has horrible effects. But when I get doctor after doctor, patient after patient telling me about the medicinal value of this, I start to listen and I get behind it.
0: What do you think the addressable market is right now for psychedelics?
2: <sighs> Man, how many people are struggling with mental health issues? Right, <laughs> Billions 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 the problem is right now it's not since it's an off-label use generally it's not going to be covered by insurance so what we're trying to do and i work with a lot of my doctors is we try to make it as affordable as possible but the quite honestly the reality is it's it's very unfortunate because you know the cannabis movement we talk about social equity and and populations that have been disproportionately impacted by cannabis and it's unfortunate because as this is an off-label use really the people who have access to it are people with money that are able to afford. I mean, out in California, they're charging like thousands of dollars for a one hour ketamine session. How many people could afford that? Here in Florida, we're closer to around like $300, which is a little bit more affordable. But at the end of the day, you don't have a huge population of people that could afford that. So I think getting insurance on board is going to be a key piece of of the ketamine
0: movement. I love this topic because you can go so many different ways with it you there there's this libertarian self-actualization piece there's this medical piece where it seems to be doing some incredible things I'm a big fan of Tim Ferriss I love the fact that he's a relatively young futurist who's constantly thinking about improving how you live your life and what the trends of the future are going to be and he is very seriously behind this and and you know he's doing work up with Johns Hopkins
2: well my Uh, biggest thing about this and the reason why like I'm getting so behind it. Look, I'm super into health and wellness. Like I've always have been. I've always been big in staying healthy, working out, staying in shape. And I've always viewed psychedelics as being something that debilitated you. I heard the word hallucinate, and I thought it meant it's distorting your reality. Psh, that ain't healthy for me. Keep that keep that away from me. But then I used psilocybin for the first time this year. I'm 35 years old. I did it for the first time this year, and I've had several journeys since then. But I was shocked at the fact that my brain was firing on all cylinders it was far from being debilitating it was actually a performance enhancer and it increased my level of consciousness and i am not just saying that like i feel like i've elevated my level of consciousness significantly and mushrooms are now a part of my health and wellness program that i've that i've created for myself so you know I I tell people all the time, people that know me, that grew up with me in college, they know I'm I'm generally a pretty straight edge dude. So when they hear that I'm starting to incorporate mushrooms into my health and wellness plan, they start to listen and they start to understand, all right, maybe I should give this a shot and really understand what it's doing.
1: You know, we like hot takes here on the regulated podcast. So I do want to get a prediction from you. So obviously, states like Oregon, Colorado, California are going to be sort of the vanguard in terms of progress in the psychedelic space you know, we may have some Southeastern bias because we are all based in Florida, but I think Florida is a good bellwether for how the nation goes, or, or, or even, you know, a state like Ohio, a, a, a Midwest state might be a better bellwether for the way the nation is thinking about these issues. When do you think one of the sort of non-progressive states who are a non-progressive major jurisdiction will take a serious decriminalization look, at any of these psychedelic substances that we've talked about? What do you think the time frame might be in your estimation?
2: I think it's going to be in the next year or so. I think Florida, I think we could get Florida on board. I mean, definitely we're going to get cities on board here in Florida, without a doubt. I have cities that are calling me now that are interested in in talking to me and, and interested in the decriminalization. So, you know, it's just like cannabis, once the just like you mentioned, the laboratories of experimentation, right? The, the states are laboratories of experimentations. Well, the cities are in some ways laboratories of of experimentation for those states. And and once we kind of create this this lab, uh, multiple labs of cities that are that are experimenting with this decrim concept, I think you're going to start seeing states really paying attention and wanting to make changes. So I think honestly, I, I hate to say it, but the only thing holding decriminalization in this state is is time. I, I don't I have a, a my own law firm, my own thought, but look, when I get in front of commissioners and I get in front of politicians and, and I and I bring my doctors, I bring my the people with PTSD, the veterans that have been cured by this, it's really hard to deny it. Really hard. It's really about activating everyone and, and putting the time in to, to educate the public. So the, as as long as it takes to educate the public, when, when if we could speed that up. We're going to see more cities and states getting involved, even ones that that aren't historically liberal states, I think will get on board. And you asked about investors. And I think investors, this is a good time for a disclaimer that nothing in this program is any legal advice and doesn't create any attorney-client privilege. And I'm also not an investment advisor, so this is not investment advice either. But I will tell you that a tremendous amount of capital is flowing into this industry, and there are... Tremendous opportunities out there right now with various businesses that are just starting up, and you know you could get in and seed rounds for for very cheap, and all of a sudden these valuations are blowing up. I mean, you see companies like Compass Pathway that just did a hundred million pre-IPO raise. Uh, you see uh, Sybin raising tons of capital. MindMed, you know these companies are getting enormous valuations. And just a few years ago, you could have gone in on them in the seed round for for almost pennies. And I'm seeing a ton of decks that get sent to me every single week for for various different businesses that are are looking to raise capital. So if you're an investor and you're, you're looking to get involved, now would not be a
1: bad time to start. Well, before we get into our shout out segment, Dustin, how do people get in touch with you and follow you on social media?
2: On social media, I am Mr. Cannabis Law. I also have social media for Mr. Psychedelic Law. So depending on what your interest is, you can either follow me on IG, I post a lot for Mr. Cannabis Law and both uh, also Mr. Psychedelic Law. My email is drobinson at Law.com. Phone number is 954-258-6084. Check out my website, mrcannabislaw.com. Check out my nonprofit website, mrpsychedeliclaw.com.
1: Awesome. And of course, we'll be retweeting all of your information on, at RegulatedPod on Twitter as well. So follow us there and get in touch with Dustin if you have any uh, interest in getting engaged, either on the nonprofit side or on the for-profit side. Sounds like he has ways to, to route you. So each episode, Dustin, we ask our guests to provide a shout out. And that could be to some, an issue that you think deserves more attention, to a group of people you think are doing good work, to a project that you're working on that you think deserves attention, or really anything of your choosing. So my question for you is, do you have a shout out? Absolutely,
2: it's a hard hard one to pick, but I guess what I'll do is I'll give a shout out to Minorities for Medical Marijuana. I just got appointed to the board. I know Christian is actually on the board as well and they're doing tremendous stuff. I've partnered with them on applications in different states where we've done social equity applications. I'm working with them right now on delivery, social equity applications in Massachusetts. They're just doing incredible work. They're having a huge impact and they're really, Represent the social equity movement quite well, so so that would be my shout out. More specifically, to Roz and Eric, who are really the leaders at at Minorities for Medical Marijuana.
1: That, that's a great shout out, and we, we love Roz and Eric here in the work that they're doing. And it's people can't. This is an audio podcast, so people cannot see our Zoom call. But there is some irony that Christian and Dustin are the only two people on this call who are actually involved with the organization, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, that, and that I am not. So I, I should probably I should probably fix that and get more uh... engaged with that. That's
2: funny. Well, you know what? It's about diversity. And, you know, I think Christian and I, you know, bring some diversity
1: to the
0: board. So it's all good. No, you guys are doing great work. Tony, do you have any shout outs?
1: You know, what's been on my mind lately, not to get too political, but obviously in October of 2020, there continues to be discussion about stimulus. The bulk of my practice is in the hospitality industry and people in this industry are very concerned that without, Stimulus. I mean, there's a study out that 40% of restaurants could close in the next six months without some additional assistance from the federal government. So, candidly, I continue to pray for stimulus over the next quarter. So, we'll see what happens with that. So, I just want to shout out to the, the local restaurateurs, bar owners out there. If you have time and you have the, the financial wherewithal, please go out and support them, tip them. And I do have one particular shout out. Which is a, a firm client of mine. Which is the Over Under Bar in Tallahassee, great midtown location. But really, any place in midtown. If you're in Tallahassee listening to this, or in your hometown, go walk downstairs from your office. Go visit your local cafe. You know, and eat lunch with them. You know, go support them because they're going to need they're going to need that support.
0: Yeah, shout out to 2021. You can't get here soon enough.
1: Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) my my shout out of the week is we haven't had a podcast since this happened so i'm gonna i'm gonna use the bully pulpit to shout out one of my favorite clients cookies which is coming to florida they're gonna make a a big splash here they've already made a splash in the sense that they have 10,000 instagram followers within like 20 hours of of opening up their florida cookies page so we're very excited to have the boys come to town and uh, we're it's about a Twelve to eighteen months spool up before cookies as we know it is gonna be really aggressively
1: moving in Florida, but I, I can't get here soon enough. So Yeah, I don't think people in sort of the Tallahassee regulatory world understand how big a brand this is. So it's gonna be very interesting. It's gonna be so good. It'll so be really very interesting. Good.
2: It'll be really interesting to see, you know, with all the regulations here with Florida, with it being medical, and and you know, Cookies has built a great recreational brand. It'll be interesting to see their packaging and how they kind of integrate that that recreational concept into a more medical approach. So I'm I'm excited to see uh, what their stores look like, what their products look like, what their packaging looks like, all that stuff.
0: Yeah. I, I think they can do it. I think that they can make that I mean they're they're selling products into medical states right now. They're you know their brands in medical states right now. So they can definitely do it. It was fun describing probably most boring edibles program in the ha,
2: ha. country well, well I, I i know they can do it because they're working with the right guy over there and you to make sure that they <laughs> could stay compliant while also conveying to the cus the patient what they want to convey so they're, they're, they're working with the right group over there to make sure that they they're compliant and also doing what they need to do to, to, to convey their message
0: appreciate that so ladies and gentlemen thank you again for joining us this week we always love talking to you about regulated issues specifically psychedelics psilocybin ketamine this has been a great conversation dustin we've been trying to do this for like two months and we've we keep having to push it back so i'm so happy it finally happened you finally got
2: on i'm 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 happy i appreciate you guys for having me on and anytime you want to have me on for, for an update. I'm, I'm happy to join.
0: Oh, you, I could see you being a show contributor. I'd, I'd like to have you back on fairly regularly on to talk about this issue. Cause I think this is like a great issue. It's not going anywhere. It's going to continue to progress. And it, there's some funny shit that comes up when we talk about it too. So it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the perfect topic. Tony, you want to send us out
1: until next time, folks, please stay compliant.